I thought we might read the passage first. Um, it's a long passage, and as we uh, work through it, I'll probably just refer to sections of the passage rather than to individual verses. So it's uh, Genesis chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor and said, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, but his sons were with the, his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak to him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let, to, yeah. brothers, let me find favour in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and the gift will be as you will and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father deceitfully because he had defiled their, daughter, their sister Diana. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. The words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was most honoured of all of his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out the gate of his city. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. 
The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took the flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and to Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This uh, chapter 34 of Genesis is a very bleak chapter in all of scripture. There are a couple of others, but this is up there with the bleakest of them all. It's uh, particularly a dark time in the life of Jacob and the children that he had with Leah. Dinah being their daughter and Simeon and Levi being two of their six sons. Dinah is brutally raped. Simeon and Levi are outrageous in the extent of their retribution in response to Dinah's rape. It actually speaks volumes about the darkness of this passage that God is not mentioned in it at all. A number of the commentators mention this in passing, but they don't actually focus on it. But I believe that as we read this passage, the more we will sense that the absence of God is the real story. The real focus of this tragedy, the tragedies of this passage, is not the woeful events themselves, but that God is not there. This passage is as much about what is not said as what is said. Pastor Gregory Brown titles this passage The Consequences of Neglecting God, and I think he's nailed it. This family has many times been totally reliant upon God, but now they are seriously neglecting him. It's amazing, even shocking, that Moses wrote this passage the way that he has, but he is showing us, the reader, the real crux of the family's woes. God is not there in their thoughts, the words or their actions of either Jacob or his family. Dinah, we don't hear from her at all. Surely in her distress she would have cried out to God. Moses doesn't record that she did. Leah, Dinah's mother, is not heard from either, not in her distress of her daughter being violated or in crying out to God for her husband to act or to give her son's wisdom. Jacob only says a few words right at the end of the chapter, not a word about God. He is wholly and only concerned about his own welfare and that the actions of Simeon and Levi have endangered him and his lifestyle. He doesn't call upon God. He expresses no godly type of fatherly love or care for his daughter. He makes no effort to rescue or avenge her and there's no godly advice given to his sons. Over Jacob's life, God had intervened time and time again at his request. The last time was when Jacob in two great companies came back into the land. He was very afraid of Esau who descended upon him with 400 men. Jacob cried out to God and God reconciles him to his brother Esau in a most amazing way, overcoming all the anger, the resentment that had built up between them over their lifetime. In our passage, Jacob's sons speak a lot, 
but they say nothing about God, nothing to God. There's a lot of talk about religious ritual, about circumcision, but they do not mention God. They do not seek his intervention. Unlike Jacob, his sons are men of action. They take matters into their own hands, as is usual. When we do that, they get way out of control and excess violence in their retribution. What is going on? Why has it all come about? Last week, Cody explained that when Jacob left Esau and they parted in the desert, Jacob's old deceitful nature kicked back into gear and instead of going down south to Sierra to live near Esau, as he said he would, he headed in the opposite direction and he went up to live at Succoth where he built a house and booths for his livestock. Chapter, chapter 33, verse 17. Sierra was not in Canaan. Esau giving up all claims to it but Succoth was not in Canaan either. At Succoth, Jacob is still not in the land that was promised to his descendants. At Succoth, Jacob hasn't obeyed God's command to return to the land. Then in chapter 33, verse 18, we're told that Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Commentators believe that between verses 17 and 18, between Jacob going to Succoth and his final coming to Shechem, 10 years passed. 10 years. Jacob is not actually in a great hurry to fulfil God's command, is he? And when Jacob comes to Canaan, where does he settle? Before a pagan city. A significant city on the main trading routes, a place where he can do business. God had already made Jacob significantly wealthy man. He went to Haran with just a staff in his hand and he returns with two large companies of people and possessions. He acknowledges that it was God who had given it to him, all that he had. But it now appears that what God has given to him is not enough. And this is where he chooses to live to increase his wealth by his own hand. When God called Jacob from Haran to to return home, he identified himself as the God of Bethel. Bethel was the place where Jacob, on his way out to Haran, had a vision of the ladder with angels ascending and descending between heaven and earth. And he said, surely this is the gateway to heaven. And that's the place that he, Jacob, called Bethel, which means the house of God. So let's be clear, Jacob has been awfully slow in responding to God's call. But now, after all this time, he is nearly where God wants him to be, but not quite. Instead of being at the house of God, Bethel, he is camped before a very pagan city, a worldly city. This is starting to read like Lot camping before Sodom and then moving in. Jacob would well know Lot's very sad and sorry story, but here he is repeating it. What did he expect was going to happen? What is going on in his head? What is going on in his heart? And it's these actions that set the scene for this sin-sick saga of chapter 34. If Jacob and his family are not outright rejecting God at this point in time, 
they're seriously ignoring him. As Pastor Brown said, they're neglecting him. And this is the problem with wealth. It makes people think that they can live independent from God. Their wealth will protect them. Their assets will provide for them. They forget that their wealth, their assets, were gifts to them by God. And they put their trust in the gifts rather than in the giver of the gifts. Jacob now is somewhere between 90 and 100, 104 years old. Maybe he feels that he has achieved all that God promised to him. So now maybe he can just settle down, kick back to a life of ease and enjoy some of the luxuries that his wealth can buy him. Verse 30 at the end of this chapter would seem to indicate that this is so. The only concern he has from all the tragedies that unfold in this passage of scripture is that his comfortable living here has come to an end. You have brought trouble on me, making me a stink to the inhabitants of this land. They will attack me, I shall be destroyed, me and my household. Me, 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 me. It's all about me. God is nowhere in his thoughts. Previously, Jacob, in his walk with God, had been amazingly blessed, both spiritually and physically. God appeared to him in visions and in person, speaking directly to him. God made him this extremely wealthy man. Jacob has overcome a lot in his life, much. He's got a lot of it right, but here he's failing at the last hurdle. He is nearly where God would have him to be, but not quite. Is that the story of our lives? Nearly where God would have us to be, but not quite? Are we reluctant in carrying out God's commands to us? We're going to tackle them in our own sweet time. There are things in our life that we just don't want to deal with at the moment. Are we looking to the blessings in life that God has given to us rather than looking to God, the giver of all good gifts? Have we just retired from our relationship with God? We might retire from working, earning a living, but we don't retire from living with God, living to him and living for him. Yet it looks like that's what Jacob did and he and his family suffer the consequences. The consequences of neglecting God. The first consequence. When God is neglected, sexual immorality becomes rampant. A number of the comments I make are from commentators and you may agree or may not. You may find them outrageous. I'm just stating them. I'm not defending them as being valid or I'm not calling them invalid. They all could have grains of truth in them. And we forget that even a grain of truth about sin is deadly. We should live with that in the forefront of our minds, but we don't. We toy with sin, we play with it just a little bit. It's harmless, but we're going to see today that it's deadly. The most outrageous thing in all of heaven, on earth or in hell, is that the smallest, most innocuous, naive sin that you or I or any of God's people commit results in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, had to die upon that cruel cross. Do we comprehend the magnitude of that? Our smallest sin and Christ 
had to die. God takes sin so terribly seriously. He cannot look upon it, not even a white lie. God's son is so precious to him and his son's death is so outrageous to him that he won't have it devalued by you or by me or by anybody at any time for any reason, no matter how small, we won't get away with treating sin flippantly. All sin, even the smallest ones, have shocking consequence. We're just going to look now at verses 1 to 12. Verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Dinah here is thought to be about 13 or 14 years of age. This was considered to be a marriageable age in those days. But despite that, we would imagine her to be fairly naive and innocent. Being described as the daughter of Leah and not Jacob's daughter, just born to him, intimates that Moses is saying she takes after her mother, Leah. She was her mother's daughter. This is a commentator's comment. What was Leah like? Commentators point out that Leah was not adverse to hiring her own husband. Chapter 30, verse 16. When Jacob came in from the field, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Jacob was being treated like a prostitute by Leah. Mind you, he was willing. The words, going out to meet him, implies that she went out dressed provocatively so that she could seduce him. And the implication is that when Diana went out to see the women of the land, she went out dressed provocatively. True, false, valid, invalid, just a grain of truth. Isn't that what young people do today? Go out dressed provocatively? Born to Jacob. Jacob is a very morally loose in the example that he sets for his own household. He is married to two sisters and he has shown he has no reluctance in sleeping with his wives' handmaidens. What sort of an example did Jacob give to his children going from bed to bed to bed to bed? Your father is not exclusively devoted to your mother. What effect would that have on you as a child? The women of the land, the Canaanite society has a reputation of being a very sexualised society, very promiscuous. Sex was a major feature in their religious worship. In their temple, they had temple prostitutes. In these pagan societies, single women were considered fair game for the princes and the rulers of the land. Don't forget Abraham's wife Sarah was taken into Pharaoh's and Abimelech's harems. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, she was taken into Abimelech's harem. Even single men were at risk. And we saw that demonstrated when the men of Sodom desired the angels to be sent out from Lot's home to them so that they might know them. Sexual immorality is rampant and out of control in Shechem. Augustine believed that Diana wanted to attend one of the Canaanite festivals that was being held and it would have been a very worldly, sexualised, licentious affair. 
Verse 2. And when Shechem, the prince of the land, saw Diana, Dinah, he seized, he lay with, and he humiliated her. Shechem's sin is very much like Eve's original sin, who saw, desired, took, and ate. And she brought death and damnation into the world as a, comp- as a consequence. Shechem obviously thinks that he can do anything he likes and he can get away with it. His whole life is a consequence of not knowing God and sexual immorality rules his life. The consequence for him in doing anything that he wants is that he brings death and destruction into his world. In verse 3 and the following verses, we may think that Shechem, by his devotion to Diana, is redeeming himself. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Despite what we've said about Jacob and Leah and where their hearts are at now, a godly influence has been over their household for a long time. Dinah would have been a very different to the girls of Shechem, who were coarse and sexualised women. She may have been naive and she may have dressed inappropriately for a godly person, but her naivety and her chasteness would have made her appealing in a way that the women of Canaan could never be. The outward appearance draws the eye, but the inward beauty draws the soul. Shechem saw her outward beauty, he lusted after her, he raped her, and then he saw her inward beauty. His soul was drawn to her, speaking tenderly to her, he fell in love with her. Many worldly men are drawn to the inward beauty of a girl raised in a godly family. They will go out of their way to get their way, putting on airs and graces and the like, but their natures don't change. To think that anything good can come of an unequal joining together of two such people is to be spiritually blind. C.H. Spurgeon once counselled a Christian girl who wanted to get married to a worldly man. He said, I want you to climb up onto the table. She did, and he said, now take my hand and pull me up. There's a bit of a rotund man, Mr Spurgeon. She couldn't do it. He just gave a small tug and she came down off the table easily. A Christian cannot pull a non-Christian up, but a non-Christian can easily pull a Christian down. Unequal yoking is not of God. It is of the world. In some cases, it is of the devil. Verse 4 shows again Shechem's true nature in the demand that he made of his father. Get me this girl for my wife. A man accustomed to getting what he wants, when he wants it, a spoilt brat of a son, becomes a self-centred, demanding man. Demanding people are ungrateful people. Nothing is ever good enough. Shechem was wealthy, maybe even handsome, but what woman wants to be married to such a man? Spoilt, self-centred, demanding, ungrateful. Notice that neither Hamor or Shechem think that marriage is an unreasonable request to make of Jacob about his daughter that they, Shechem's just raped. Notice that in verses 8 to 12, when all the negotiations are going on, there's no acknowledgement of wrongdoing, no apology, no thought that justice was needed or needed to be dispensed. Nothing. They are wealthy men. 
Shechem says, you name the price, I'll pay it. They think they can just buy whatever they want. People who have that attitude think that if you pay enough money, then all these perceived morality problems, these justice problems, will just go away. It's the way the world still operates today. They said, you can become one of us. We will all be one big happy family. What's ours is yours, and what's yours is ours. You marry into our family, and we'll marry into your family. We'll all prosper together. We will all be the same. They desired to absorb the Israelites into their culture. They had to go along with this religious ritual of circumcision, but a few days' pain, it would be more than worth it. They all agree that the reward is so great that they submit to it. But there's certainly no thought of taking on their strict and demanding God. They don't think that they will submit to him. They are trying to pull Israel down to their level, not to be lifted up. Point one. When God is neglected, sexual, sexual immorality becomes rampant. Is sexual immorality rampant in our lives? No. I pray not. None of us involved in rape or adultery, those major sins. But what about the sins that are bubbling along just under the surface of our lives? Jacob's multiple partners, even as he was having these major interactions with God. What's going on even now in our lives as we declare ourselves to be Christians? Nothing like that. Nothing on that scale. What about some occasional porn? Or porn out of control? That, in God's eyes, is multiple partners. It's actually worse than what Jacob is doing. At least he has a formal relationship with each of these women. But going from image on the screen to another image on the screen, on the internet, is adultery, in God's eyes. And seeing that many of these girls are forced or coerced or drugged, it could well be rape as far as God is concerned. Amazing how God treats it. A bit of sex texting here, explicit photo or two, some sexualised conversation, just flirting. Is our thought life a bit on the wicked side? It's well known that all these things are quite common amongst people who attend church people who profess to be God's people. We think it's not, the, it's not a real thing. It's never going to go anywhere. It's, it's nothing really. It's a bit of light-hearted fun. You can tell that to me, but try telling that to God and see how you fare. If that's how we think we're already neglecting God and sexual immorality is running amok in our lives, God is going to hold us accountable not just for our actions, but every thought we entertain in our heads. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that thinking something is the same as doing it. That is how serious both God and Jesus are about sin. How serious they are about Jesus having to die for it and God putting all of his wrath for all of our sins on him and we think we're going to treat it lightly. Once again, Spurgeon said, you can't stop a thought from coming into your head, but you can stop it from making a home there. It's like a bird. You can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop him from making a nest in your hair.
just get a short haircut. <laughs> I'll have no hair. We're not just messing right-heartedly with sin. We're messing with the eternal, righteous, holy God and his wrath, his hatred of sin. Point two. When God is neglected, children get neglected. I'm using a reference here from Genesis 34, our reading, verses 1, 5, and then verses 13 to 17. We've already seen the parental neglect in the life of Dinah. Dinah was the daughter of Leah, the unloved wife of Jacob. Jacob favoured Rebekah and her children over Leah and hers. He favoured his sons over his daughter. Dinah was at the very bottom of this pile of his regard. Jacob knew that unaccompanied girls would be fair game to men in the land. A dangerous society, yet Dinah is out on her own. Where are the parental boundaries imposed upon her? Boundaries imposed out of love to protect one's children. No boundaries indicates no love. That is devastating, particularly for a girl to know that her father doesn't love her. How is she ever going to know how to act around men? Where is she going to go looking for her father's love? How will she seek to know the love of a man? Why isn't Jacob or a few of the brothers with her to protect her. The only girl in the household, what provision have they made for her to have friends? That is a major role for parents, making sure that your children have the right friends. Dinah, wanting to go out and see the women of the land, is a natural desire for your young, naive girl who has no female companionship of her own age in her own house. We need to be wise to both the needs and the desires of our children. After the rape, Jacob keeps his peace. He stays uninvolved. Does Diana, Dinah really mean so little to him? He doesn't charge Shechem with the crime of rape. He doesn't seek justice from Hamor or from Shechem. At least he could have demanded that Dinah be brought back home in verse 26, we see that she is held captive in Shechem's house. He could have at least demanded her return so the family could seek to console her and minister to her. But no, he holds his peace. If ever a daughter was neglected, it was Dinah. What about the sons? Jacob's sons are way out of line saying that they'll agree to intermarriage if only the Canaanites get circumcised. Whether Jacob is in on this deception or not, being used by Simeon and Levi, this is a major spiritual failure. His sons should have been seriously rebuked for using the holy things of God and his covenant for their own devious ends. They are prostituting the sign of God's covenant, circumcision, by it being carried out on people who are not God's people, a people who have no intention of worshipping him alone. If Jacob is not on in on this deception, then it opens up his family to the potential of compromising them with the Canaanites, adopting their sins and being consumed by them. Abraham would not allow Isaac to go and marry a Canaanite girl. Isaac would not allow Jacob to marry a Canaanite. But Jacob is silent when it is suggested that his sons and daughters intermarry with Canaanites. Jacob completely fails his children both physically and spiritually. 
In neglecting God, parents often neglect establishing the proper boundaries for their children. What are our children exposed to that they shouldn't be? TV, internet, social media, video games, music, books. This is where temptation and negative influences come from today. What are our children engaged with? In Romans 16, 19, Paul says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Are we teaching our children about sin, what they will encounter in the world, how they should respond to the world, how they have to be guarded in their interactions with the TV, the internet, social media, gaming, books, music. They've got to be able to make the call themselves. If we don't teach them these things, the world will expose it to them in a negative way. It will promote evil to them and it will lure them into sin, not away from it. We must train up our children to be both wise and innocent. As parents, we impart wisdom to our children so that they can go out into the world, live in the world, but not be of it. We only have our children for a short time before they themselves become adults and they themselves will be responsible before God for themselves. We need to be diligent in the wisdom that we impart to them. A parent who does not set boundaries will tend not to discipline their children either. Proverbs 22 verse 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but a rod of discipline will drive it far from him. We freak out about that word rod today, don't we? But that's not the focus. Discipline is the point. Discipline drives folly from the heart of a child. Hopefully, you'll never have to use a rod. There are many ways that we can go about disciplining a child. But discipline them, we must. If a child grows up without discipline, they will be wild and rebellious. If there is no discipline in our homes, our children will not respect us. They will not respect their teachers, their bosses, the government, and finally God. Disrespect leads to dishonesty, it will lead to crime, and it leads to anarchy in their life. Jacob failed not only Diana, but his sons also. It's believed that Simeon and Levi are in their early 20s. They were right in seeking justice, but they went on in an unrestrained, impulsive anger to bypass their father's authority, deceive the men of Shechem, abuse God's covenant sign, and commit wholesale slaughter. They ran a mark. It was anarchy. We can read this story and we think, ah, well, the men of Shechem got what they deserved. If we all got what we deserved, God would strike us dead now this instant. The men of Shechem didn't deserve to die for Shechem's rape of Dinah. The massacre was totally over the top. Why do we neglect our children? Maybe we were neglected as a child and we never learnt how to parent. Maybe we are too caught up in our careers or other pursuits so that we farm out our kids to others, to schools, to coaches, tutors, others who have no Christian values. And then we think we'll just come and we'll park them in front of the TV for hours of a day and then on Sunday we'll bring them to church and in one or two hours it's not going to have any impact upon them. The third point, when God is neglected, 
religion is abused. Chapter 34, verses 13 to 17 and verses 21 to 23. When Jacob's sons answered Shechem's request to marry Dinah, they followed their father's example of being deceitful. They said that it could only happen if they become circumcised. They had no intention of letting Dinah marry him or they intermarrying with the women of the land. Using circumcision, the sign of their faith, to get the deal done and to incapacitate the men was a total abuse of all of that covenant between God and his people. Circumcision was always an outward sign of what had taken place in their heart. Jacob's sons Simeon and Levi were never intending for these men to become part of God's people. Their hearts were so full of anger it was always genocide that was on their minds. Wanting justice in the rape of Dinah is right and proper and Shechem should be held to account but the slaughter of all the men of the city, as I said, was over the top. They may have thought that with Hamor and Shechem being the rulers of the land, they would never get a fair hearing at law. They'd never get justice, so what should they do? They should have taken it to God. God was more than capable of taking care of this situation. But no, they thought they had to deal with it. They neglected God or any thought of him in their planning and in their actions. They dressed it up as a, in a ritual of being religious. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 35, God says, Vengeance is mine. Paul in Romans 12 takes it further saying, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Another way religion is constantly being abused is using it as a money-making venture. We've all heard of pastors becoming unbelievably wealthy and enjoying every luxury that money can buy. Churches aren't to be used as money-making businesses. The Canaanites saw that their being joined to Israel was a way of greatly increasing their wealth and Jacob's sons did nothing to dissuade them of that. They kept it there before them as a motivation to persuade them to be circumcised and therefore incapacitated. Religion is abused when it comforts people emotionally but does not deal with the ongoing worldliness of sin in their life. There was absolutely no attempt to address the worldliness of the Canaanites. If we are as, as a church are just making you feel happy about how you are living your life and not challenging you about sin and worldliness, then we are abusing you and abusing our obligations to God when he put you in relationship with us. When religion is abused, the church fills up with false believers. Being part of the church is all about one of us serving, each one of us serving each other by building each other up in the faith, by encouraging each other, by edifying each other, by rebuking each other and as, church, as a church disciplining those who are unrepentant in sin. Being part of the church is all about being sanctified and made holy. And that is all about dealing with sin in our lives here and now rather than before the judgment throne of God at the brink of eternity. Don't think that we should be in each other's lives like that. Tell that to God. You would rather answer to God than a fellow believer. 
Good luck with that. The fourth thing that happens when God is neglected is that violence increases. The violence of Simeon and Levi in killing all the men is totally disproportionate to holding Shechem to account. Chapter 34, verses 25 to 29. When we take God's work on for ourselves, you can be sure you'll muck it up big time. C.S. Lewis in his final book of the Narnia series, The Last Battle, tells of King Tyran speaking to his friend Jewel, the unicorn. They are rejoicing at the news that Aslan has returned to Narnia. It's not long before a messenger comes in saying that it's a lie. A lie, says the king. Who would dare tell such a lie? Without knowing it, his hand dropped to his sword. Moments later, another messenger comes in saying, all the talking trees have been cut down. The king leaps to his feet and draws his sword. There are no enemies present, but he has a sword in hand and the king and the unicorn set off to find who has done this terrible thing. On the way, they learn that Aslan is in Narnia and he ordered the talking trees to be cut down. But overcome by anger and unable to think clearly, they press on until they come upon two soldiers whipping a horse. And they charged the soldiers in such rage that they did not know what they were doing. The king swung his sword, beheading one soldier, and the unicorn impaled the other one on his horn. Whipping a horse was probably a bad thing to do, but killing soldiers in murderous rage goes way too far. It was impulsive anger that ran unrestrained. So angry they could not think clearly. They did not know what they were doing. King David got into such a murderous rage when Nabal wouldn't provide for him and his men after he'd protected Nabal's shepherds and flocks. David ordered 400 of his men to strap on their swords and he went looking for Nabal to kill him and all of his men. Nabal's wife, Abigail, interceded with David, saying that David's life was bound up in the care of God and he should let God deal with her husband, as he surely would. David blesses Abigail for restraining his impulsive rage. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beware of the passions of the flesh that war against the soul. Ephesians 4.26, In your anger do not sin. James 1.26, The anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 4.19, And trust yourself to God. Ten days later, God struck Nabal dead. God fought David's battle and vindicated him. You don't think that God will do it for you? As I said before, Deuteronomy 32, 35, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. His hand delivers you, sometimes by human agency, most of the time by somebody else that he will raise up, rarely by your own hand. This is how he keeps us all action hero men humble before him. It's how he keeps you action hero women humble. We're not characters in some action hero Marvel movie. We often desire to be one. We want to be a hero, but we're not. Jesus is the hero. God is the hero. All glory be to God. But oh, how we desire a little bit of glory for ourselves. Jacob's son's actions went way beyond what was reasonable. At the most, Shechem's life should have been forfeited. 
but Hamer's life and the lives of all the men of the city, taking all their goods, their wives, their children captive, gross, outrageous anarchy. In your anger, do not sin. Oh, how hard that is to do. If anger is leading you into sin, it is not righteous anger. Righteous anger is without sin, restrained, reasoned. If you are neglecting God, hatred, anger, violence will be manifesting itself in your life. Maybe just the way you speak. Maybe the video games that you watch, the movies. How do you treat or speak about your neighbours, your workmates, your fellow brethren? Does anger rage well up in you when you become aggressive? Men, are your, is your wife or your children scared of you? Ladies, do you scare your husband? Men, do you force your wife to submit to you? Do you try to control everything that she does? Do you gaslight her, make her feel worthless? And you think yourself so wonderful? Do you provoke your children to anger? Are you unreasonable? Do you lose it when you're disciplining your children? Wives, do you rule over your husband with a sharp, cutting, waspish tongue? Do you try to emasculate him so that he can't lead you? Do you actually get to blows with each other, lash out, throw things? Husbands, if you are loving your wives as Christ loved the church, they will respect you. Wives, if you are giving respect to your husbands where it's due, he will love you. Parents, if you are raising your children as God's gift to you, they will honour you. A final point. When God is neglected, he uses the consequences of that neglect to achieve his purposes. In verses 30-31, it leaves us with Jacob at a very low place, feeling very sorry for himself and the fact that his lifestyle has been taken away from him. Jacob's sons are still self-righteously justifying themselves. Should he treat our sister as a prostitute? This is really about them, about their reputation, about how they are perceived. The sons have gone way beyond anything that was reasonable and they'll never be able to justify it. Only Shechem did it, only Shechem should have paid for it. So we can be left thinking, what has been the point of all this tragedy? Why is it even in the Bible? This warts and all story tells it as it is. It is true. God's people are shown as they truly are. The main point is, is that God is providentially using the consequences of his people neglect of him for his purposes to conform us to his will. We through sin bring a lot of suffering upon ourselves, but it is through this suffering that God sanctifies us and makes us holy, fit for heaven. We have an amazing God working in an amazing way. We will see next week, it is when Jacob is low, his son's full of self-righteousness, that God finally appears. He comes in grace and mercy. He again instructs them to go to Bethel, the house of God. All the grief of chapter 34 has worked its purpose. They repent, ditch their foreign gods, purify themselves, and then they go to Bethel. It's weaned them off Shechem. They go to the place where God had called them to, not to the place where they wanted to be. We might balk at God using the suffering of Dinah, a relatively innocent girl, as a catalyst to achieve his purposes, 
But it is a theme that is repeated throughout Scripture. This is just a precursor to what God had to do to get his people to leave the comforts of Egypt. Egypt was so attractive to them that Joseph had given them the blessed land and they were greatly increased. The living was good. It was still good when they were put to labour. They still had the land, the flocks, their crops. When a pharaoh came who did not know Joseph, he decided to make it a hard labour. But still they flourished. So he decides an act of genocide was the only way to control the flourishing of the Israelites. And he orders all the newborn baby boys to be killed. God used that tragic event to get his man, Moses, as a baby into Pharaoh's household. And it wasn't until 40 years later that Moses goes to his people thinking that he will lead them out of slavery. But no, they reject him. And another 40 years of escalating hardship before God decided that the time was right for them to leave. But still they complained and were reluctant to leave. When Jesus was born, again a great slaughter of boys under two took place as Herod tried to kill the Messiah who came into the world as a baby and would one day lead his people out of slavery of the world, out from the, under the dominion of sin and Satan and death. Rubens painted a painting of it. It's called the, of that great slaughter of the young boys. It's called the Massacre of the Innocent. These are shocking, dreadful events where the innocent all suffer. Our minds really can't comprehend the horror of it all. And we get indignant about how the innocent suffer and how could God allow such a thing. Truth is, such a thing happens because us, mankind, rejected God's rule over us and our out-of-control sin causes these shocking events. The problem is us, mankind, thinking that we can do without God, that we are masters of our own destiny. We can't tell God to get out of our lives and then complain when the resulting tragedy that occurs, caused by our sin, God didn't stop it. How can you complain? Horror upon horror has been perpetrated by sinful men upon the supposedly innocent. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, verse 5 says, I was shapen in iniquity, in sin my mother did conceive me. A sinful nature is inherently genetic in all of us. Even a newborn child is passed down from parents to their children, from Adam and Eve to us. Biblical history is all about God being in our lives, restraining sin and its consequences. We reject his rule in our life, live without him, and sin and its consequences spirals out of control. Tragedy in our life is a result. Praise God that he does answer the cries of despair of sinful men who have rejected him and he does step in and intervene when sin spirals out of control. He did it at the flood, at the Tower of Babel, the plagues in Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, all through biblical history. He changes kings' hearts, raises them and their kingdoms up and he casts them down. Trouble is we don't like the consequences of God cleaning up the mess. His interventions are really dramatic. The greatest intervention of God was when he stepped into history and Jesus came into the world as a baby at Bethlehem. The greatest horror that anybody has ever experienced belongs to God the Father as he looked down from heaven and watched his own beloved son being crushed by his wrath for our sins 
on, poured out on Jesus, who was the only truly innocent one. Our views of things are very distorted. We need to get God's view. The death of God's son is the most horror-filled event that ever occurred, yet God used it to show his love, his mercy and grace to foul, vile sinners, such as Jacob, such as his sons, but to you and to me who believe. Sinful mankind causes the innocent to suffer. Sinful mankind nailed Jesus to the cross. The sins of mankind is what Jesus died for by being punished in him by the wrath of God the Father. Praise God that the only truly innocent one, God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, chose to suffer for us, submitted himself to suffer in our place for us. Jesus and his suffering in our place is the only reason we escape the wrath of God upon us. It is for your sin and my sin that Jesus suffered so that we might have eternal life. John 1.11 says he came into the, unto his own, but his own received him not, but to all that received him, believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Just look at that. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. That is shocking. But that is the same of us who profess to be Christians, ignoring and neglecting him. That is not receiving him. Are we going to stop messing around and accept the great sacrifice that Jesus made for us? Are we going to live as children of God, turning to him, calling upon him as our father for everything that we need in life? Are we going to live under the blessing of God, set free from slavery to the world, free from the dominion of sin, Satan and the fear of death? If we are, it means forsaking ourselves and stop going our own way, doing our own thing, and we've got to start living a life, fleeing from sin, not neglecting God, but living in a father relationship, a father-child relationship with him, honouring him, obeying him, serving him, full of praise and joy and thankfulness to him, expressing it at every opportunity, giving him the glory for all the things on all occasions. What are we going to choose? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, you have put this passage of scripture into uh, your word so that it would be very challenging, Lord, to us. We thank you, Lord, for the challenges that it does issue to us and we pray, Lord, that they might be held in our hearts and minds and that they might shape the choice that we have to make. We pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit that you would make us, Lord, your children that we would receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, that we would not reject him, that we would not reject you, O God, that we would live in relationship with you, O God, that we would deal, Lord, with sin in our life, that we would not think of sin as a trivial thing that we can put off dealing with till tomorrow, that we can be relaxed about, Help us, Lord, to see sin as you see it, as something that can't even be looked upon. Enable us, Lord, in all these things and raise us up, Lord, to be your servants that uh, love you, obey you, honour you, serve you, serve your people and serve your purposes, Lord, in this world. 
Enable us in all these things, we pray. Amen.